Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. The guest has arrived. The host is prepped and ready. Ladies and gentlemen, this is One on One with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my co- friends call me Bill, and you're one-on-one with Bill Alexander. It is a pleasure to be with you guys today, and it's a pleasure to be talking to this individual because he has pretty much done everything in the field of entertainment in one way, shape, or another. He's been on the Hollywood squares. He's written for TV programs like Donnie and Marie. He's written for the Star Wars holiday special, which I don't know if we want to give him credit for that uh, or if he'll take credit for that. <laughs> and and he's written for a lot of other things. Who's on the, with me today is Bruce Falange. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm moderate to heavy. How are you? Doing real good. So <laughs> I was going through your stuff and I and I I've seen you on TV, I've seen you on Hollywood Square, and I've seen you do other guest appearances on other shows. And what I think is interesting is, is you actually wrote a, a uh, performance called Almost Famous. Why do you feel that you're almost famous? Well, because I, I guess because I am. I mean, when I, uh, I would even, even, even at the height of Hollywood Squares, which was almost 20 years ago, I would uh, be at an airport and, and people would be surrounding me getting autographs because it was just before selfies. And uh, and and there'd be a crowd, and I, you know, I'd be signing, and somebody would walk by and say, "Who's he?" So it's like almost famous. It isn't like Brad Pitt or Justin Bieber, where they're clawing for a, a piece of your skin. Right. You know, it's like the people who know you know who you are, and the people who don't know you haven't got the foggiest clue. <laughs> They'll, they'll still point and laugh. Although I do, uh, I mean, it's oh, you get a lot of people who say he looks familiar. As opposed to saying he looks freaky, they say he looks familiar, and uh, because they've seen me somewhere on TV, because I, you know, I've been around. You, but that it's it's not like you know fame, fame. It's not like the kind of fame where you can't go out. It's a, uh, you know, it's the kind of fame where they go, oh, oh, come to the head of the line. <laughs> okay. So, so what's, so what's interesting is you've written for quite a few TV programs, and. One of the ones I think is really interesting, and let me start before the TV, you actually wrote for Bette Midler when she was starting out. How did you and Bette, how did you and, and the uh, Bette Midler actually meet? These was Palace Merchandising. I'll take yes. that, Bette. <laughs> From the residency, which was already 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I met her in, uh, I was in Chicago. I was a journalist. I was a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, she was on Broadway in Fiddler on the Roof. And they, a friend of mine uh, was managing her, a guy I knew named Bud Friedman, who ran the improv in New York. And he uh, had booked her into a club in Chicago called Mr. Kelly's, which was where a lot of very hip acts broke in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it has a documentary about it, as a matter of fact. 
And he asked me if I would write about her uh, when she was in town. So I went and reviewed her, and, I, and she knocked me out. And I wrote up uh, about her. I reviewed it. Then I interviewed her, and um, and she liked the interview. She called me and said, uh, "It's a very funny interview. You're very funny. You, uh, you should." Uh, uh, and I said, "Well, you're very funny. You should talk more on stage." And she said, "You got any lines?" And I began writing. <laughs> okay, they were all like Chicago jokes, local things. And then it became a thing where she would be going to uh, after. Fiddler, and she played the, the Continental Baths, and she began to happen. And uh, she started touring and, and got an album, and she would call me and say, uh, who do you know in Charlotte, North Carolina? Uh, I need a joke about that. And it began like that. And I, be I just began writing and writing. And it's been 50 years. Wow. Which um, is difficult because she's only 38, I think. Yeah, so. I'm going to mention that. And she's been running that that age for quite a few years because not today, as long as, was... as as Manilow. We are Barry Manilow was her piano player when, when we started. And, uh, we used to joke. She said, "I met him. I was twenty five. He was twenty seven. Now I'm seventy six. He's forty two. How <laughs> does he do it?" Well, I, I, I'm going through some stuff today, and I and I forgot about a TV program that she did. That she actually had her own sitcom for a year. That oh yeah, I that think was was that. I think was very well done. It's just that I think it was was presented way before its time. And well, I think the audience really didn't understand what they were trying to do with it. Uh, there are many explanations. Uh, uh, one, uh, it was, uh, she was playing herself, sort of, but not really. And right. uh, so it, it, it had a sort of, there was a discomfort factor in there. Uh, and it, it never really, um, it never really landed. And and the indication that was it got a tremendous uh, rating the first week, and then it uh, was was tangentially, I mean, cataclysmically lower every week. Uh, the other thing, of course, it was opposite what was at that time the most popular thing on television. Who wants to be a millionaire with Richard Feldman? And uh, it was expected to make a dent in his ratings, and it mm -hmm. did not do so. And, it, uh, and, and they, they were spending a lot of money on the show and they weren't getting the bang for their buck. And, uh, and so they, 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 uh, and then she got into a little dispute with Les Moonves, who's been canceled since. Uh, and uh, as a result, it got canceled. And there were four episodes that, that were in the can that, that never aired. But What's interesting about that is that there was in the pilot, there was a young actress that people recognized but they really didn't know who she was by the name of Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. And also in the first episode, Bet is making fun of Regis and who wants to be a millionaire by saying, how will this, this will never catch on. But yet, like you said, she was up against yeah. the program and it was just doing amazing in the ratings. So when you, when you actually started writing, you wrote for her, you did the Broadway show clams on the half show, and then you co-wrote, divine madness for her in 1980 what did that start really giving you your break into what you were writing did other people start coming to you going bruce we want you to write for us what can you do for me it, it actually happened before that uh, i was in chicago for five years uh writing for the trib and i met her early in that and uh as she began catching on right away and other people in the business had heard about me and they would come and I, I would interview them uh, for the paper. That was my job. And uh, they started asking me to write for them. So I had a, a 
a bunch of people, Lily Tomlin and George Carlin and David Steinberg, Richard Pryor. I was writing for a whole bunch of people. And um, after five years, uh, Bette's dresser had a brother named Tim Hauser who created the Manhattan Transfer, which was a singing group. Yeah. That, uh, it still is. 50 years later, they're still singing. They're a jazz act now. But at first, they were like part of the nostalgia craze, and then they became an international organization, and then they became a jazz act. So uh, we put the, their act together and got them a television series, a summer replacement show. They used to have those for Variety TV when yes. there was Variety TV. And so I came out to L.A. to do that. So I came out with a job and a kind of reputation and already like a client list. So uh, that was so that was how it began. It all started with Beth. There's absolutely no question about it. So when you when you say you were writing, you were actually writing for their stand up acts for Lily and for Billy Crystal, Roseanne Barr and uh, even Rosie yeah. O'Donnell. You were doing you were writing for the stand up. Were you submitting it to them or were they saying, hey, this is what we want to do? And you were asked well, to write for them. Some of those names I, I was writing for their appearances on television. And they hosted oh, okay. a uh, at the beginning, everybody writes their own material. And what happens is when you when there's interest in you. And you, you get into what Joni Mitchell called the star maker machinery. Uh, you have less time to write. And that's when you start to take on collaborators. Okay. And so I was brought in by a lot of people because they had to keep refreshing their material. But they didn't have the time to do it because they were very busy being them and making appearances on shows like this. And this is the, you know, when nobody wanted them, they had lots of time to sit there and write. And, <laughs> right. And break it in at, at open mic night and place, stuff like that. But then when you when you catch on, uh, suddenly you're wanted as a personality. You know, I mean, uh, a great the greatest example of this of all time is Betty White, who oh, was yes. an actress and wound up being a personality. And then in her third act, became an actress again. Mm-hmm. Or her second act. Right. And, and, third, um, and then third. So you've written for quite a few people. I mean, it, it, one of your things in your bio here, it says you wrote for Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, I did. I, in fact, I'm, I was just on the phone with the woman who was writing the authorized biography of Elizabeth. And uh, um, we were, I was telling her stories. Everything I did with Elizabeth had to do with AIDS fundraising. I mean, after oh, okay. Rock Hudson, uh, after Rock Hudson uh, came out, she um, she uh, aligned herself with the with the, the disease because she realized it was a pariah and right. nobody wanted to be associated with it. And like a lot of uh, women, uh, big stars, she had been surrounded by gay men and she watched them as they were dropping one by one. So it was her and Madonna and Bette and uh, Joan Rivers and Nell Carter uh, who were the ones in the forefront of, uh, of fundraising. And Elizabeth took it over. She created the fundraising, uh, the fundraising machine in, in America. In in Britain, it was Princess Diana who created all of that. And uh, in America, it was Elizabeth. And so I was involved in that. We did big fundraisers every year. And she then uh, de- developed a foundation as a clearinghouse. So you, she would raise things, ra- do, do events. We, we sold her 65th birthday as a special to ABC television. And it was a fundraiser for the, uh, her AIDS foundation, which distributed money to every other foundation. That was, it was a clearinghouse. So that was what I was doing with, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it's Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, biggest star in the world. 
Well, that's 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 one of those names you can put on a resume and people will look at it and go, wait, Liz Taylor, how did you get that? I mean, yeah, right. that that's just amazing. I now, didn't write any one, movies for her. Well, hey, um, but there there's the one thing that I mentioned and I said, I don't know if you'll take credit for it or not, but the 1978 Star Wars holiday special. Who thought it was a good idea to make a holiday special with with Chewbacca? I still don't understand how that was a good idea. That all came from George. (laughs) That's why he's tried to have it destroyed, because he doesn't want to admit it all came from him. That he he had he told me he had 10 stories and he was gonna make six movies, and he had only made one at the time. Right. And uh, uh, and he sold off the other four stories, and this was the last one in the bin. And he sold it to CBS as a placeholder in between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back to keep the audience, to keep interest. And uh, I don't think if I, I thought, first of all, he thought he, he had come up with an idea for an original musical, and he thought that would be a great musical thing. But I think if he had thought a little bit further, he would not have come up with a, an idea for a musical that starred uh, the main principal characters who could neither sing nor dance nor speak any known language. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he was coming up with it with like you know a very an ungainly mime show. That was not his idea. So it was it was that was the first you know, big red flag. And um, and I also have to point I point this out to people all the time, and they're they're not happy. But first of all. It was the 70s, and we right. were all chemically altered. And I, I, I do that joke. I do a joke. I said, well, Carrie Fisher and I were snorting the sweet and low. We were doing everything. <laughs> you know, that, I embroider for humor. Uh, now I read things that saying Valance, who admits to copious cocaine abuse during the... <laughs> I admit to no such thing. It never happened. I was kind of joking, but everybody right. was kind of... We were all kind of half-baked. <laughs> I mean, it was the 70s. Every, people who tell you that they remember the 70s weren't there. It's just right. And the 60s before them, older versions of those people. So that's the first thing to know. The second thing to know is there was a lot of very bizarre television being done in the variety field. You know, Wayne Newton at SeaWorld, things like that. And so this was not that bizarre an idea. It was unusual, but it wasn't like, you know, it was like, hey, this might work. And the other thing I have to tell you is that, and this always pisses people off, is that a lot of people were not that nuts about Star Wars. It was a movie. It had been a a big attraction the previous summer. They didn't know that it was going to become a legacy. Nobody nobody saw that coming except George, obviously. And... and when this, when we were doing this show, Star Wars had not yet become the Scientology of the nerds. Okay. It had not become a religion. But subsequently, after the three movies, VHS came in, and people began watching those movies and be turning the thing into a religious cult experience. And then the internet happened, and they got to find the holiday special on the internet, and they felt betrayed. Mm-hmm. And George was under siege. Like, how could you do this? You know, how could you betray us this way with this horseship that you put, put forth? <laughs> and because of the internet and because George then slavishly made three more movies and has made like three or four or five more movies since then that are all from the canon, and every time it happens, this comes up, which is great for me because I get to tell these stories. Right. But I, 
Finally, George caved in and uh, um, uh, sold the thing, the idea to Lego, and they did a Lego how Star Wars, which referenced the I old show. Oh yeah, it was on last Christmas, and um, uh, and they had a, a Lego figure of, of Daisy Ridley, looked just like Rosie O'Donnell, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Not translate well to Legoland, <laughs> but but. Uh, it, you know, he finally said, and in The Mandalorian, they make references to uh, to Life Day, which was something he invented back then for that special. And of course, for, for Star Wars people, the only really redeeming thing about it is we introduced Bubba Fett, which is mm-hmm. now, uh, Bubba Fett has his own series on Disney+. Plus. Right. But uh, Bubba Fett was a, 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 a 10-minute animated segment of the special that... <laughs> Because George could not sell a full-length animation of Bubba Fett at the time. So he went up to Canada and had a temp thing that would be inserted into the show. And for people who live in Star Wars, uh, the, in the galaxy far, far away, uh, that's the only thing they want to discuss in terms of the... <laughs> well, but my name is Alan, I couldn't take it off. That's one of the joys of the writer's guild. Because once you're there, you're there. You're there. Well, the interesting thing, when that came out, I was 12 years old at the time. Uh-huh. And I remember, and that was when you were a kid, if you loved the Star Wars film, that was something you were looking forward to because you right. could identify the characters. Now, the other thing, and I and I try to tell in my kids, I have one that's 21, I have one that's uh, 17 and one 14, and try to explain to them about variety shows that happened in the 70s. Yeah, and and you try to show them Carol Burnett, and they don't understand it. But we had variety shows on; it was like two or three times a week. You had the yeah. Donnie Marie well, show was, that you wrote for, and it's every like, night. and how can how? I mean, it wouldn't translate today. But you also did the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, which to me is amazing that you put those people in these sequined outfits. <laughs> And did it. And again, people watched it. People enjoyed that. That was what, well, uh, okay. Maybe it's getting more life now because of the internet. But again, it's very oh, interesting. I'll tell, I will, I'll tell you why it's getting more life. Because the Brady Bunch movie and the Brady Bunch sequel, which were parodies of the Brady Bunch. Yes. Uh, created such interest in the Brady Bunch, which had never gone away, by the way. It's still in rerun syndication. Uh, on, on stations across the country and on various uh, platforms. But because of that, Paramount, which owned the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, dredged it up and put it on Nick at Night, which they also own. Yeah. And uh, it's all Viacom now. And as a result, people who'd never seen the thing, look, you know, it was, it was 20 years later, they, they would call me up and they'd say, dude, I just saw this show on TV with Rob, the, the dad with the Brady Bunch, and he's Carmen Miranda drag. Your name is on it. How did that happen? So. Again, yeah, because, and then, and you're talking about the 70s. I mean, in, in one of the programs that came out, I mean, for goodness sakes, you had Paul Lynn do a variety special, which I, made no sense too. whatsoever for Halloween. Did well, you do he, the, but he, because he was a witch, so it made perfect sense. <laughs> did you do the Halloween special? Did I you did, yeah. Did you really? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm writing a book about all of this. Yes, I did. But, but and you had Betty White in that, too, because you she did, played was, the good witch. She was the good witch. She was Glinda. Absolutely right. And we had Marvin Hamilton 
as yes. uh, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West. We had uh, we had Billy, uh, um, uh, the, the, the uh, Witchy Poo. Wait, I was just gonna, yeah, Billy Hayes. Billy Hayes, who, who Richie Poo on on HR Puff and stuff, Puff and stuff, yeah, right from Sid and Marty Croft, who had produced uh, Donnie Marie that Paul was on, and you know it, it it's all very interfamilial. But that that's really interesting to me because when you look back at some of these, and like I said, I it was me watching it was just natural, but it looked like somebody had to be on something. When they created these ideas, well, as I mentioned, we were chemically altered. <laughs> we were all we were all a little floating a little bit above the clouds. There's no question about it. But that also kind of fostered the atmosphere of let's try this. This is kind of insane, and and let's go with that. I mean, Sid and Marty had a show called Lidsville, which oh, was on I know, Saturday with, morning, which Charles Charles Nelson Riley, which way with Charles with Charles Nelson Riley, <laughs> and then I met Mike Reynolds. Yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was the culture at the time. It was not unusual. And uh, the, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour happened because Fred Silverman, who, who at one point ran all three of the commercial networks, uh, one after the other, was, was running ABC. And he had come, he had come up with the concept of, uh, of, of co-hosts, of partners. And okay. he was responsible for the Smothers Brothers and, uh, uh, Donnie Marie and Tony Orlando and Dawn, and he like he thought that was it, it, you weren't uh, it wasn't all resting on the shoulders of one fabulous performer, and uh, so he he wanted to do a show for the Partridge family because the Partridge family was a musical family that toured in a bus, and uh, would lend themselves to it, and they didn't want to do it. Uh, uh, David Cassidy had left, and he was he was a big star. And I, I surely I don't think was interested in doing that. And um, it, it fell apart. And so he went to the Brady Bunch, and the Brady kids had an act. They had they did state fairs and things. And of course, Florence was you know was Miss Broadway. So um, uh, he managed to, to uh, he, he convinced him to do it, and Sid and Marty came in and produced it. And so uh, what was strange was that, of course, they had an act, the Brady kids. It wasn't a great act, and they weren't terrific at what they did, but it was, there was a precedent. So, uh, and the only one who was really the sore thumb was, was Bob Reed, because, you know, <laughs> he was a serious actor who had yeah. who, who decided he, it wasn't happening for him, so he would play a sitcom dad and yeah. kind of cash the check. Yeah, he and felt now he was stuck him, with yeah. this forever. And then, and then the idea of the perms and everything, which made no sense whatsoever. But um, and and uh, Greg Brady um, being Johnny Bravo, which was started the act of right, the Brady yeah. Kids. I actually have the album just to let you know uh -huh. because I watched the Brady Bunch when I was a kid. So again, it's really interesting. So when you look at the comedy of the 1970s to 2022, which is hard for me to say. <laughs> has comedy changed or is it still the same basic idea it's just the um events have changed along the way well comedy is comedy i mean you know you can go back and read plutarch which updated became a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and it's uh it, you know people slip on a banana peel and it's a laugh but I mean, at the moment we're we're in, we're in a minefield because of cancel culture and BLM and Me Too and every everybody everybody is just so freaking sensitive, and I understand that being a member of several minorities myself, right? And, 
you know, but at the same time, I mean, you can be too woke because I mean, if you're that woke, nothing is funny. Uh, and uh, you just might as well, you know, go back and you know, be Hamlet, <laughs> go into a cave. <laughs> so just, just so do, you, do, you see, do you see comedy and society going back to the way it was, or do you feel it becoming more restrictive? Uh, I, I, I see a little bit of pushback happening. I think that, okay. uh, the, and, and some people are saying, you know, uh, the woke thing is a product of the media bubble and it is the shrill voices that are being heard. And a lot of people who, a lot of people, the majority don't agree with it, but they get the stronger points of it. But there, there will be a balance that will come up because I think a lot of it has to do with the loudest voice in the room is being heard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and, People are there. There's a knee-jerk reaction, you know, when when they have to edit Chris Noth out of an HBO Max show of, of the Sex in the City reboot because of unsubstantiated oh, yeah. allegations. Uh, it's crazy. That's crazy. But they, it's easier to do that than to actually deal with it, than to actually take a stand. And and Ted Sarandos ironically takes a stand in favor of Dave Chappelle. Uh, and of course, he's castigated for that. But you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of what Dave Chappelle did, so I have another opinion about that. But I, I will say, Ted, I don't think Ted Sarandos took a stand for the right reasons. Uh, but uh, at least he did, he did take a stand, and that's interesting that that somebody on that level is saying enough of this. Yeah, and I, and I, he's and only I saying it because Dave Chappelle is so popular. He's not saying it because he believes this. Well, uh, if you, the market force at work. If you go back and look at Chappelle, because two of the most um, um, noteworthy appearances he made was on Saturday Night Live when Donald Trump won the presidency and then when he lost the presidency. And Chappelle's stand-up or opening monologue those two nights, no one could have gotten away with what he said. No one. The language or anything that was on live TV at the time, it just blew over because his his popularity like you said is so strong he has a large enough audience to be able to do it so is it saying that he took a stand by standing up for Chappelle because of who he was or would it have been different if it would have been a comedian that no one ever heard of would he have stood up for him uh well I I can't answer that definitively, but I can give you my opinion. I think not. I think he would not have stood up for Hannah Gadsby, who attacked Chappelle and attacked him after uh, he stood up for him. I think it was only because of Chappelle's popularity that he, mm -hmm. that he stood up for him. And I also think, and this is not going to be a popular opinion, that Chappelle gets away with stuff because nobody wants to go after a black guy, unless it's Bill Cosby. Right. Okay. I got you. And I think so. I think Chappelle is in a kind of safe zone. And I think it's doubly ironic that he then thinks it's okay for him to pick on trans people. I mean, a guy who represents a minority that's consistently picked on says, oh, it's okay. I can pick on this minority. They're, they're safe. Because he's in a safe zone himself. Right. And I think that that's, that indicates who he probably really is. I don't, I've only, I met him years ago before he was Dave Chappelle. So. Which is interesting. Now you 
you do have, according to this, you do have um, an acting career or you did have an acting career, <laughs> um, brief that it may have been, but uh, I'm available. What do you mean? <laughs> Here. I'm on this like, fucking show. What are you talking about? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> hey. You were in an, a bit part in the episode of Bosom Buddies. Oh, with, yeah. Well, way back. With with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari, who just recently um, passed away. Uh-huh. Um, how was it working with those guys, especially before Tom Hanks became Tom Hanks? Yeah, it was just, it was great. I mean, uh they, uh, I was already, uh, I believe, uh, a TV personality in a way because I was uh, doing the midnight special, which was Friday nights at one o'clock in the morning from one to two thirty. It followed the uh, Johnny Carson show, mm-hmm. and um, and it was Wolfman Jack was the actual host of the show, and it was live performances and. Uh, what happened that was that uh, cable came in and basically killed variety television. Right. And, and part of the reason was anytime you wanted to see anybody who you like, you, you like Madonna, she was on MTV every hour on the hour. So a lot of these and, and a lot these acts now had uh, budgets in their record deals that they could make. They cut videos of, of their, uh, their singles. So they didn't want to come up to go to Burbank and do a live performance. And they would just, they'd go put a, you know, run the video. And NBC didn't want to do that because there was a syndicated show called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Yes, that I was remember that. Showing, showing videos. Mm-hmm. And um, they wanted to be distinctive and just do a live performance. And as a result, they couldn't fill the 90 minutes. So they, the, Dick Ebersole, who was producing it, uh, came up with the idea of what became eventually politically incorrect. It was a bunch of people sitting around and talking about the, the issues of the day. And it was segments stuck in between the live performances. And we, the first week, uh, David Steinberg, the comedian, uh, hosted it. And, uh, and it was, I, there were like four of us on the panel. And uh, the second week, I walked in and, uh, and Dick said to me, David, quit. You're the host. <laughs> So I was the host of this segment and it was like one o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was so weird. And I discovered that I would, I, that was my first uh, 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 instance of being almost famous because I would go down the street and for some reason I had a big black following and I never understood why. There was a black guy on the show who was a right wing incendiary guy and we used to butt heads, but it was always funny. And and I would meet people who would say, "Yeah, you go get him." I mean, he's not one of us, you know. He's, he's crazy, right. he's crazy guy. And uh, and I just, I just kind of so anyway. So I was sort of known already when I was when I was doing that. So what was it? Wait, where did we start with this thing? I, <laughs> I'm so busy talking. I've never talked about this. I'm so busy talking about this because nobody remembers the Midnight Special. But we were, t- but we were talking about you doing TV and oh, me doing and brothers and everything. Else. Oh, so anyway, they cast me in Bosom Buddies because they knew me from that, from the Midnight Special. And they thought it would be funny to just have me do, as it was a sight gag. Tom, uh, in, the, in, the, in the show, Tom quit his job and became a hot dog vendor. 
Okay. And, uh, and I was a customer, and I turned out to be a hot dog gourmand. And I was reviewing. <laughs> it's a specific little dog. I was like the Orson Wells of hot dog eaters. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and it was that was it was the one scene, and we shot it at the at Paramount on the New York Street. It was it was an exterior, and it was great. I mean, I was there the whole week because that's what how sitcoms are. You know, you right. go in with the table read, and then you stage it, and then you shoot it, and uh, you know. The network sees it, and it's a whole week. So, and you're and you're very well compensated for it. So, I had a great time. The people on it were lovely. Donna Douglas was on it, who married Dan Aykroyd, and um, uh, Wendy Jo Sperber, who was adorable, and Holland Taylor, who's become a great friend over the years, um, and and Tom, who's been, and Peter, who, who all all of whom were friends of mine, and so it, it lasted. That that, but but how was Tom? I mean, no one knew who he was. Until he started, I mean, he did Splash and he did Big and he did these movies. He was, he was, uh, he was great and funny. I mean, he was, uh, I said to him, uh, you know, you're going to be Jack Lemmon. I said, you are, you are the every man who, who can do physical stuff and yeah. who is funny and is uh, at the same time not threatening. I said that you're, you are going to be the next Jack Lemmon. And of course, he turned into the next Jimmy Stewart. And Henry Fonda. I mean, he's become all of those guys now because there's nobody else who really touches what he does. I mean, you know, I mean, he he plays Mister Rogers for Christ's sake, you know. Yeah. So, so can he? Can uh, can you? Will he take your call now? Oh, is yeah. he too big that he'll take? He won't take it, or you well, can call all, him? Think, Tom has never been too big to take anybody's call, okay. in, in my estimation. I mean, he is he is that 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 kind of guy. Um, some people who are not as big as Tom think they are, and you know, I, you know, but that's all. I mean, it doesn't have anything. I think it has a little bit to do with fame, but I think it's more to do with who they are, uh, basically. Okay. You know, at at bottom, au fond, as we say in the French. Yeah, we um, it, here in the Pittsburgh area, we basically adopted Tom Hanks when he played oh. Mister Rogers because. <laughs> In our mind, he was Mr. Rogers. Even his Mr. Rogers' wife was just so impressed with him and him being able to do it, even though the movie really wasn't about Mr. Rogers, which I think was very interesting. So, yeah. again, yeah. It, 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 is, it is a credit to his, um, his talent and his following. <laughs> the other one, and I didn't know this, and I, I'm, I was racking my brain today, but you had a brief scene in the movie Breathless. With Richard yes, Gere. I did. <clears throat> that I was actually cast in. Um, and I, I knew the director, Jim McBride. Um, uh, uh, Jim, uh, Kit Carson, Kit Carson, not the uh, famous Western hero, but a writer, Kit Carson, who had done a, a, a very small movie with Jim McBride. And, uh, and they wanted to do an American version of Breathless. And Kit was married to Karen Black, who was a friend of mine. And uh, and so we had discussed this at dinner and whatnot. And so when uh, they actually got the deal to make the movie, uh, Kit called me and said, I have this scene, this this one scene uh, with, the, with, the, with the, we want you to do with Richard. And Richard was a friend of mine, too. I knew Richard from... We had all we were all part of a group that hung out together before he was famous when he first came out to Hollywood, and uh, I'm very old, a long time ago. <laughs> and, 
So we we uh, we shot this. So I did it, and it's uh, and I will tell you that it's for those of you who've never seen it. Uh, he's a, he's like a small time thief, and uh, he he's at a, a very low bar in L.A. and he he comes into the men's room, and uh, he mugs me, and, and uh, steals my locket. And it, it becomes a, a thing. It's a heart, a beeping heart. I'm wearing a lock. And I'm a big queen in the men's room. And uh, um, and that was the scene, basically. I had like two scenes in the thing. And um, some years later, I was in New York and I was introduced to Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol said, you're in Breathless. <laughs> you were brilliant. You're a genius. <laughs> I looked at my thought. He's nuts. I, you know, I had, he's nuts. And I was with my agent, who's a, a good close friend, and she said, Andy Warhol says you're a genius. You're a genius. You're a genius. That's right. <laughs> another another <laughs> Pittsburgh native was Andy yeah, Warhol. Exactly. Carnegie. Carnegie Mellon. There he is. So, it was, it was kind of hilarious. And I just thought, you know, I never understood if that was like, if, I always thought he's sort of putting you on, but at the same time, he's so sincere. Yeah. It was always difficult. I got to know him a little bit, not not well, but I, it was always so hard to tell if he was real or fake. Or, and ultimately, it didn't matter because I'm telling you the story. It made for a great story. Well, what's interesting is I looked up when you were talking, I looked up uh, the whole cast listing and you're listed as the man with pur- with a purse. Uh- yes, I, I took my purse. I had a, I had a purse. <laughs> I had him so, first, and he pulled. I think he pulls the locket off my neck, something like that, or uh, something like that. I forget exactly. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Um, Karen, it was by the way, ironically, just here's a footnote for trivia fans. Karen was in the movie, and uh, she had one scene with him uh, as a waitress. Oh, actually, she had a couple of scenes. She was she was somebody a, a brief love interest, but he was so shitty to her that when they previewed it, the audience actively hated him for what he did to her. And so they cut it out because they, it was important that you, that you like the, you root for the guy, even though right. he, he's a low life. Uh, he's trying to be better, that kind of thing. So um, they, they, they cut the thing out. And, it's, and, and she was great in those scenes. Had they said they kept in, she might've gotten another nomination because it was really, really powerful. So you were on Broadway and you were in Hairspray. That's right. And you were Edna Turnblatt. Correct. Which most people know the person that played that on the movie was John Travolta. Well, originally it was Divine. Right. It was Divine. In the John Waters version. And then, of course, I, I, on Broadway was Harvey Firestein who originated it. And then right. John did the, the movie of the musical. Right. So, and, and, uh, Feinstein, uh, we knew him. He was in, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire with, uh, with Robin, Robin Williams because he was doing yeah. the makeup and everything for him. So what was it like to perform completely as an older woman in drag through the whole performance? It was fabulous. I mean, she's, you know, it's not really a drag show because she's, uh, uh, you are doing a real woman, and she's she's eccentric, but uh, she's not it's, she's not a, a drag queen character, uh, and um, uh, it, 
I, I loved doing it. It pushed an OCD button I didn't know I had going in, you know, doing it eight times a week. And I've, I've often said, uh, hairspray is like a party. You know, the minute you, the audience is there to have fun. And the moment you hit the stage, you realize that you're a part of it. And even if you don't feel like doing it that night, you are brought into it. Uh, unlike, I said, if I was Vanessa Redgrave and I had to do, I did Medea and had to kill my children and drag the corpses around the stage eight times a week. I might not be so lighthearted about the whole thing. Right, gotcha. Kind of understand her now, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was it was uh, fun to do. I mean, it's it's anybody who tells you it's not is just you know is in the wrong business. Yeah, because it, it, it's like it's a gift. It's it's such a yeah. fabulous role. It 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 is. It's fun to watch. And you were also in um, Law and Order. What what <laughs> episode of Law and Order were you in? Because I'm I a was? big fan of that program. It says you appeared on TV again in Law and Order. Was this Wikipedia? Because there's a lot of bullshit in there. <laughs> hey, you know it's, it's like, been right so far. but they have me a year younger, so I'm not correct. That. Uh, I uh, Law and Order. I don't remember being on I'll Law have, and Order. I'll have to go through and double check that. But anyway. I tried to get my mother on Law and Order because um, yeah. my a friend of mine was Ed Sharon was producing it and. She kept hocking me to get her on television because I was so famous. And so he said, uh, well, we'll put her on Law and Order. And uh, they offered her, uh, she was the woman who discovers the body before the opening credits. And she was thrilled. And then they told her she had to join SAG and how much it was going to cost, which was more than she would make. Right. And she said, what are they, nuts? I'm gone before, if you, if you blink, I'm not there. I'm gone before it comes on. <laughs> The hell with it. <laughs> so somebody else's mother got to be the person who discovered the body. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to play a corpse, and that would be the program that I'd want to be on. Uh, I, I, really, if, I, if I was on, it was for a second, but I don't really remember that. I, I, I would remember that. I mean, there were oh, so I, many law and orders. Which one, the mothership, or you know? Well, well, they're bringing it back again, from what I understand. Yeah, which I'm going. Exactly. Yeah, I mean. How, how much longer? So you you've had a very you've had a very long, long and and long career. I mean, and yeah. again, like you said, you've almost famous because you have <laughs> literally scratched the surface in a lot of situations that do you feel there would have been one role or one situation you played in that could have broken you through that that famous uh, title? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, I just didn't get the part. That's all. I mean, I always okay. wanted to, to do a sitcom. I could be the wacky gay neighbor or something like that. And and as an actor, my my problem has been that uh, I became a personality, and I'm uh, so okay. I'm identified with a certain look. And uh, they 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 don't know that like that, that that I will surrender all of that for the right role, and I will, but it hasn't come along. So I I, I plot on. You know, and uh, I mean, I, after Hairspray, I was ready to do more stuff. And there were a couple of false starts and it just, you know, and people can say, oh, write something for yourself. Uh, so I have, but we'll see if it actually, if we can actually get it done. So, I have so many things I can't plug. So why, why haven't you written your own vehicle for you to be able to do something like well, that? Well, I don't know, doctor. You tell me. Well, I'm asking. <laughs> uh, uh, as I just got said, I have, and we'll, we'll see if, if it happens. It hasn't happened yet. 
I, I didn't write, but it's, it's a good question because earlier on, uh, writing something for myself, um, it was, uh, there were more constrictions. I mean, uh, you know, we, uh, I wrote a Will and Grace before Will and Grace and we tried to sell it. Uh, it was a, a true story of me and my agent, uh, a woman who I'd, I'd lived with in college and we lived together for a while in LA and I was gay and she was not. Okay. And, uh, and you know, it, it was hard to sell. But then Max Moschick and David Cohen came up with Will and Grace and the time was right. Oddly enough, Joan's client, Eric McCormack, played Will. And uh, um, the time was right for it. After Ellen, the right. things opened up. I mean, uh, as, as you know, crazy as she is, uh, you can never take away the political impact of her actions. She's all, she will always be a hero because she, she didn't kick the glass ceiling, but she kicked the, the lavender ceiling. So the interesting thing, and you mentioned that because we see on TV right now, when you're dealing with gay characters, they're always young. And they're 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 in their twenties or in their thirties. Why haven't we seen anything of people over the age of sixty as a gay character? Because we know it existed then. It's just mm-hmm. we never because, said what ended up happening or how they made it through those tough and difficult times. Because it's an ageist society, and they're not interested in and and you're not going to sell tampons to people who are watching that show. And everything now is narrow casting. If, if you right. could come up with something. I mean, I was part of a show called Silver Foxes, which was basically Golden Girls with older gay guys. Yeah. And uh, they couldn't sell it. And uh, one explanation to me was everybody has a, a funny old lady in their family. Not that many people have a gay uncle. A lot of people do, but not that many. Not as many as have a funny old lady. Right. I mean. Obviously, that's true. But um, and that that was one reason why they they didn't do it, because they thought it wasn't there wasn't that much of a commonality. But Leslie Jordan, who was uh, on Silver Foxes, has gone from sitcom to sitcom playing the gay character. Mm -hmm. He's on one now with my Bialik, Call Me Cat. And he was on one before at where he was the gay guy at the assisted living facility, the senior living center. So. Um, it was. It's. Uh, uh, I, I think that there's there's something to be mined there, and I think when it comes down to real niche broadcasting, I mean, there's logo, which is for gay people, but not for old gay people, apparently, and because uh, uh, they were one of the people who consistently passed on any project that involves older gay people, and um, uh, there's I think just no there's not an appetite for it. Which again, I and I've always I've always felt this way that it's interesting because the older population, whatever it may be, they're the ones with the money, but yet we're marketing to the kids in the twenties and the thirties who are just starting their lives or their careers, and the guys that are retired are the ones we should be going after. Well, it depends on what you're selling, doesn't it? Well, that's true too, I guess. I mean, you know, if you're selling mode tampons you want to be on riverdale <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> that audience is watching it if you're selling uh mac trucks you want to be on uh nfl yeah you know so it's it's as i say it used to be broadcasting a narrow it's narrow cast narrow and an old advertising principle has been get them while they're young and they will develop a brand loyalty right i got you so the, the market something to people who are not a growth 
segment of the population because they'd be dying uh, is not the smartest uh, thing. I mean, obviously, if you if you are selling Metamucil, sure. I mean, if you ever look at any of the network news shows in the evening, they are all sponsored by drugs. Pharmaceuticals, you're right. Pharmaceutical products, big pharma owns CBS, NBC, and ABC Evening News because that's the audience. It's an older Fox News, basically. I mean, this thing came out today saying that uh, uh, The Five is the highest rated news program on the air. Uh, Maybe maybe under 60 minutes, but uh, probably right around there. But you look at it's people who are watching Fox News, right? Who are basically Fox News has been scaring old people for thirty years. So of old all people the, and mouth breathers, yeah. So of all the people that you have written for, is there anybody that stands out that you enjoyed writing for more? Well, if I didn't say Bette Midler, I'd be crazy. She'd okay, other than Bette Midler, with her Lizzie Borden hatchet. But no, of course it's Bette. I mean, I bet I loved writing. For Whoopi, I loved writing for Billy. Uh, Steve Martin was um, uh, a favorite Oscar host because he's such an oddball. He's just so much fun. It, it all, you know, his worldview is so brilliantly skewed. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people I've enjoyed writing for, but I mean, the four. There was a movie of twenty years ago called Get Bruce, which was about me and what I do, mm-hmm. and it was Bet, Billy, Robin, and Whoopi were the four that were highlighted. And, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. It's pretty fabulous. And we're going to do a sequel called Had Bruce with a much larger cast. <laughs> what is that, that going The original was produced by Harvey Weinstein, who never laid a hand on me. <laughs> Hashtag why not me? <laughs> so, what, so what is that going to happen? What? Oh, had Bruce? Yeah, had Bruce. Oh, I'm, oh, as soon as the pandemic passes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would be funny. Um, but but have you ever written for somebody that they said, hey, we need you to write for this guy and they're not funny? Oh, and all you're the time. trying to make yeah. them funny? Is well, it possible? It happens on award shows all the time. I mean, on award shows, you want to, if not make them funny, at least lighten them up because they're coming out and they're presenting some award like art direction or sound editing. Uh-huh. And you want them to have a little bit of fun. But, you know, they're they're not funny out of context. I mean, I've, I'm still apologizing to Keanu Reeves. We gave him a bit to do. For, uh, I forget the category, but he we thought he should do it as, as Bill and Ted, only because we didn't have the other guy. <laughs> and so it, it, it was just terrible. But and, and he tried. He was, you know, actors, when they have a character to play, will do it. Right. But uh, when they don't, they don't have, there's no, they don't have a, a stage persona because they're, they inhabit the role they're in. And if they're smart, they develop a persona like Johnny Depp developed a persona that was somewhere between Captain Jack Sparrow and Hunter Thompson, right. two, two cat parts he played. And that was his, that's his talk show personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, but they're not all, you know, they're not all willing to play that game. Uh, with, with, with writing for the Oscars or for award shows, do you write in, because a lot of these people have their own political agendas. Do you include that in what you write or do you just try to steer away from that? Depends on who they are and, okay. and, uh, and what they are comfortable doing. Obviously, if Jane Fonda can score a point uh, off of her political agenda, she would like to. Because 
that's her her persona. She is that Jane Fonda uh, professionally. That's not Jane Fonda personally. I mean, she has passion, but she's that's not what she's all about when you're with her. Uh, uh, her greatest character is creating Jane Fonda, that that person who sits on you know cannons and stuff and takes positions. Um, uh, and Lily Tomlin would lo- always loves to uh, um, to make some score some kind of political point. Bet likes to do it too if she can. So um, it's it's all up to what, what they what they want and and what they feel like. Some of them just want to stay away from all of that okay. stuff. That's not not who they are. I mean, Roseanne was at her height incendiary before she kind of whacked out. I mean, yes. she uh, and and her her TV show was full of stuff like that, full of social commentary. But it was it was clothed in the guise of the Connor family, and, yeah. and people accepted it. And, and, and when she did it just as Roseanne, they weren't so happy with that. So, how about Rosie O'Donnell? Uh, she, well, when when she was hosting the talk show, she was the queen of nice, as she frankly admits. And part of what happened to her is it was she she started uh, coming when she came out and she quit the show. She started talking about how how phony the show had been, right. and she lost a lot of her base at that point because they loved her and trusted her, and they no longer did. And but I think she had to do that for herself. That was. Have you, know. you ever written anything that didn't go the way you wanted to and it damaged someone's career? Or well, affected you know, it? Ted Danson and Blackface was probably the best example. Yeah, I did that with Whoopi, and that's in the movie in Get Bruce, the whole story of that. Uh, and I'm sure it did damage his career, but he he came back. Right. Uh, and, it, you know, it was done, I mean, for all the uh, good reasons. And, and the problem was it, it was done with it it was conceived for an audience that would get it at the friars club and unfortunately the friars club expanded their base right at that time and a lot of people who didn't get it were there and they had to take a public position so and and they they apologized like crazy the friars club and and that's another thing that's interesting now because we have the internet and youtube and people feeling the need to record everything they see that when they record something in that situation like that and they put it online and it's taken out of context, it really screws up the meaning of it. And sure. again, it becomes that cancel, um, cancel culture because no one understands where either where the joke was going or the situation they were in. I agree. Context is everything. And you, what they've basically done is cancel context. And that's, that's tragic because everything is contextual. So the final question I have for you, if you did not become a comedy writer working in the entertainment industry, what do you think you would have done? Oh, porn. <laughs> I have an really? enormous penis and I really would have got, the offers would have come flowing in. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, I wanted legit. I always wanted legit. I I'd always, always from the time I was little, I, it was show business. My mother said I, I learned how to read by looking at the ad, the movie ads in the newspaper. Uh-huh. Back when there were newspapers and when there, there were movie ads. Yeah. Everything's gone now. But uh, so I was always, and I made faces in the mirror, and it was very clear early on that I was I was a performer and I was going to be in show business. So, so is there, so there was never anything else. I mean, we 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 made faints at things you know oh maybe law maybe my father was a doctor but I, my joke was i didn't have the patience that so, i'm ching yeah yeah so um 
uh, it was always show business. And it would have been some some kind of thing. There was there was never any anything else. So, uh, are you working on anything right now that hopefully we'll be able to see? Uh, I'm working on a musical. Uh, it's something with Dolly Parton that we're probably going to do in the fall. Really? Next. Yeah. And I can't talk about other than that uh, because we haven't, you know, we haven't made made all the deals yet. But uh, I'm doing that, and I'm uh, I'm I'll be performing in a couple of places, uh, uh, putting my toe back in live because we all did, and then Omicron came and we've all exceeded. Right. So I'm supposed to be in. Uh, well, when is it now? Now it's not going to be till April. Uh, um, <clears throat> no. Uh, March twelfth uh, in uh, Fort Lauderdale at the Saver, a theater called the Saver, and then uh, April sixteenth in San Diego at Martinis. Those are booked, and whatever else comes along, twixt now and then. Well, Bruce, thank you very much. This was a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to you. Cool. Um, and I, I was waiting for the Glam Squad to show up, but I didn't see them. Me so. either. That's why I look like this. They were all they, they got a better offer. What can I so, tell you? There so are thank you. To... So, <laughs> so thank Get you very much. And I really appreciate talking All to you right. today. Bye-bye. Have fun. Take care. A big thank you goes out to Bruce Relange. I had a blast. I mean, that's talking TV gold right there. And also uh, being able to talk to him about what he wrote on, what he was in, and everything else. Bruce, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody that uh, joined us today. Here on One on One with Bill Alexander, you guys have a great day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to One on One with Bill Alexander. One on One with Bill Alexander is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to BillAlexander.net. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.